0: Chapter 1 of Behind the Scenes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beverly Scott. Behind the Scenes by Elizabeth Keckley. Chapter 1 where I was born. My life has been an eventful one. I was born a slave, was the child of slave parents. Therefore, I came upon the earth free in godlike thought, but fettered in action. My birthplace was Dinwiddie Court House in Virginia. My recollections of childhood are distinct perhaps for the reason that many stirring incidents are associated with that period. I am now on the shady side of forty, and as I sit alone in my room, the brain is busy, and a rapidly moving panorama brings scene after scene before me, some pleasant and others sad. And when I thus greet old familiar faces— I often find myself wondering if I am not living the past over again. The visions are so terribly distinct that I almost imagine them to be real. Hour after hour I sit while the scenes are being shifted, and as I gaze upon the panorama of the past, I realize how crowded with incidents my life has been. Every day seems like a romance within itself, and the years grow into ponderous volumes. As I cannot condense, I must omit many strange passages in my history. From such a wilderness of events, it is difficult to make a selection, but as I am not writing altogether the history of myself— I will confine my story to the most important incidents which I believe influenced the molding of my character. As I glance over the crowded sea of the past, these incidents stand forth prominently, the guideposts of memory. I presume that I must have been four years old when I first began to remember "'at least I cannot now recall anything occurring previous to this period. "'My master, Colonel A. Burwell, "'was somewhat unsettled in his business affairs, "'and while I was yet an infant, he made several removals. "'While living at Hampton-Sydney College, Prince Edward County, Virginia, "'Mrs. Burwell gave birth to a daughter, a sweet black-eyed baby.' my earliest and fondest pet to take care of this baby was my first duty true i was but a child myself only four years old but then i had been raised in a hardy school had been taught to rely upon myself and to prepare myself to render assistance to others the lesson was not a bitter one for i was too young to indulge in philosophy and the precepts that I then treasured and practiced, I believe developed those principles of character which have enabled me to triumph over so many difficulties. Notwithstanding all the wrongs that slavery heaped upon me, I can bless it for one thing, Youth's Important Lesson of Self-Reliance. The baby was named Elizabeth, "'and it was pleasant to me to be assigned a duty in connection with it, "'for the discharge of that duty transferred me from the rude cabin "'to the household of my master. "'My simple attire was a short dress and a little white apron. "'My old mistress encouraged me in rocking the cradle "'by telling me that if I would watch over the baby well, "'keep the flies out of its face "'and not let it cry. "'I should be its little maid. "'This was a golden promise, "'and I required no better inducement "'for the faithful performance of my task. "'I began to rock the cradle most industriously "'when lo, out-pitched little pet on the floor. "'I instantly cried out, "'Oh, the baby's on the floor! "'And not knowing what to do, I seized the fire shovel in my perplexity and was trying to shovel up my tender charge when my mistress called to me to let the child alone and then ordered that I be taken out and lashed for my carelessness. The blows were not administered with a light hand, I assure you, and doubtless the severity of the lashing has made me remember the incident so well. This was the first time I was punished in this cruel way, but not the last. The black-eyed baby that I called my pet grew into a self-willed girl, and in after years was the cause of much trouble to me. I grew strong and healthy, and notwithstanding I knit socks and attended to various kinds of work, I was repeatedly told, when even fourteen years old, "'that I would never be worth my salt. "'When I was eight, Mr. Burwell's family "'consisted of six sons and four daughters "'with a large family of servants. "'My mother was kind and forbearing. "'Mrs. Burwell, a hard taskmaster, "'and as mother had so much work to do "'in making clothes, etc., for the family, "'besides the slaves,' I determined to render her all the assistance in my power, and in rendering her such assistance, my young energies were taxed to the utmost. I was my mother's only child, which made her love for me all the stronger. I did not know much of my father, for he was the slave of another man, and when Mr. Burwell moved from Dinwiddie, he was separated from us and only allowed to visit my mother twice a year during the Easter holidays and Christmas. At last, Mr. Burwell determined to reward my mother by making an arrangement with the owner of my father, by which the separation of my parents could be brought to an end. It was a bright day indeed, for my mother... "'when it was announced that my father was coming to live with us. "'The old weary look faded from her face, "'and she worked as if her heart was in every task. "'But the golden days did not last long. "'The radiant dream faded all too soon. "'In the morning my father called me to him and kissed me, "'then held me out at arm's length, as if he were regarding his child with pride. "'She is growing into a large, fine girl,' he remarked to my mother. "'I don't know which I like best, you or Lizzie, as both are so dear to me. "'My mother's name was Agnes, and my father delighted to call me his little Lizzie.' While yet my father and mother were speaking, hopefully, joyfully, of the future, Mr. Burwell came to the cabin with a letter in his hand. He was a kind master in some things, and as gently as possible informed my parents that they must part. For in two hours my father must join his master at Dinwiddie and go with him to the west." where he had determined to make his future home. The announcement fell upon the little circle in that rude log cabin like a thunderbolt. I can remember the scene as if it were but yesterday. How my father cried out against the cruel separation. His last kiss. His wild straining of my mother to his bosom. The solemn prayer to heaven the tears and sobs, the fearful anguish of broken hearts. The last kiss, the last goodbye, and he, my father, was gone. Gone forever. The shadow eclipsed the sunshine and love brought despair. The parting was eternal. The cloud had no silver lining, but I trust that it will be all silver in heaven. We who are crushed to earth with heavy chains, who travel a weary, rugged, thorny road, groping through midnight darkness on earth, earn our right to enjoy the sunshine in the great hereafter. At the grave, at least, we should be permitted to lay our burdens down that a new world, a world of brightness, may open to us. The light that is denied us here should grow into a flood of effulgence beyond the dark, mysterious shadows of death. Deep as was the distress of my mother in parting with my father, her sorrow did not screen her from insult. "'My old mistress said to her, "'Stop your nonsense. "'There is no necessity for you putting on airs. "'Your husband is not the only slave "'that has been sold from his family, "'and you are not the only one that has had to part. "'There are plenty more men about here, "'and if you want a husband so badly, "'stop your crying and go and find another.' "'To these unfeeling words my mother made no reply she turned away in stoical silence with a curl of that loathing scorn upon her lips which swelled in her heart. My father and mother never met again in this world. They kept up a regular correspondence for years and the most precious mementos of my existence are the faded old letters that he wrote full of love and always hoping that the future would bring brighter days in nearly every letter is a message for me tell my darling little Lizzie he writes to be a good girl and to learn her book kiss her for me and tell her that I will come to see her some day thus he wrote time and again but he never came He lived in hope, but died without ever seeing his wife and child. I note a few extracts from one of my father's letters to my mother, following copy literally. Shelbyville, September 6, 1833 Mrs. Agnes Hobbs Dear Wife my dear beloved wife, I am more than glad to meet with opportunity to write these few lines to you by my mistress, who are now about starting to Virginia, and several others of my old friends are with her. In company, Mrs. Ann Russ, the wife of Master Thomas Russ, and Dan Woodhead and his family. And I am very sorry that I haven't the chance to go with them, as I feel determined to see you. If life lasts again, I am now here and out at this place, so I am not able to get off at this time. I am right well and hearty, and all the rest of master's family. I heard this evening by mistress that I just from the all sends love to you and all my old friends. I am a living in a town called Shelbyville. AND I HAVE WROTE A GREAT MANY LETTERS SINCE I'VE BEEN HERE AND ALMOST BEEN READY TO MYSELF THAT IT'S OUT OF THE QUESTION TO WRITE ANY MORE AT ALL. MY DEAR WIFE, I DON'T FEEL nowise LIKE GIVING OUT WRITING TO YOU AS YET AND I HOPE WHEN YOU GET THIS LETTER THAT YOU'LL BE ENCOURAGED TO WRITE ME A LETTER. I AM WELL SATISFIED AT MY LIVING AT THIS PLACE. I AM A MAKING MONEY FOR MY OWN BENEFIT. And I hope that it's yours also if I live to see next year. I shall have my own time from Master by giving him $120 a year. And I think I shall be doing good business at that. And have something more than all that. I hope with God's help that I may be able to rejoice with you on the earth. And in heaven let's meet. When will I am determined to never stop praying? Not in this earth. And I hope to praise God in glory. There we'll meet to part no more forever. So, my dear wife, I hope to meet you in paradise to praise God forever. I want Elizabeth to be a good girl. And not to think that because I am bound so far, that God's not able to open the way. George Pleasant, Hobbs, a servant of Grum the last letter that my mother received from my father was dated shelberville tennessee march twenty eighteen thirty nine he writes in a cheerful strain and hopes to see her soon alas he looked forward to a meeting in vain year after year the one great hope swelled in his heart but the hope was only realized beyond the dark portals of the grave. When I was about seven years old, I witnessed for the first time the sale of a human being. We were living at Prince Edward in Virginia, and Master had just purchased his hogs for the winter, for which he was unable to pay in full. To escape from his embarrassment, it was necessary to sell one of the slaves. Little Joe. The son of the cook was selected as the victim his mother was ordered to dress him up in his sunday clothes and send him to the house he came in with a bright face was placed in the scales and was sold like the hogs at so much per pound his mother was kept in ignorance of the transaction but her suspicions were aroused "'When her son started for Petersburg in the wagon, "'the truth began to dawn upon her mind, "'and she pleaded piteously "'that her boy should not be taken from her. "'But Master quieted her by telling her "'that he was simply going to town with the wagon "'and would be back in the morning. "'Morning came, "'but Little Joe did not return to his mother. "'Morning after morning passed,' and the mother went down to the grave without ever seeing her child again. One day, she was whipped for grieving for her lost boy. Colonel Burwell never liked to see one of his slaves wear a sorrowful face, and those who offended in this particular way were always punished. Alas, the sunny face of the slave is not always an indication of sunshine in the heart. Colonel Burwell at one time owned about seventy slaves, all of which were sold, and in a majority of instances wives were separated from husbands and children from their parents. Slavery in the border states forty years ago was different from what it was twenty years ago. Time seemed to soften the hearts of master and mistress and to ensure kinder and more humane treatment to bondsmen and bondswomen. When I was quite a child, an incident occurred which my mother afterward impressed more strongly on my mind. One of my uncles, a slave of Colonel Burwell, lost a pair of plow lines, and when the loss was made known, the master gave him a new pair and told him that if he did not take care of them, he would punish him severely. In a few weeks, the second pair of lions were stolen, and my uncle hung himself, rather than meet the displeasure of his master. My mother went to the spring in the morning for a pail of water, and on looking up into the willow tree which shaded the bubbling crystal stream, she discovered the lifeless form of her brother suspended beneath one of the strong branches. Rather than be punished the way Colonel Burwell punished his servants, he took his own life. Slavery had its dark side as well as its bright side. End of chapter one. Recording by Beverly Scott Camden, Maine